continue to looking uh, continue to look at the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace, as you are well aware, uh, were rescued from out of the shadowy gloom of Roman Catholicism and heralded at the great Reformation. And they, the doctrines of grace, are, are in case you don't realize by now, the heart and soul um, of our theology um, here at uh, Pacific Hope Church. Uh, from out of the Reformation, we have the five solas, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Out of the Reformation comes TULIP, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism, which serve as a rejoinder or a biblical response uh, to the five points of Arminianism presented by the students of Jacob Arminius and were deemed heretical in 1619. We've, we looked at, we've looked at the history of that um, time and the Synod of Dort and so on uh, over the last few weeks. If you've missed that, you can go listen online. Uh, we've looked at the doctrine of total depravity, the fact that all men are sinners, all are polluted, all are guilty before God. The Scripture says all are at enmity of God, all are dead in trespasses and sins, and all by nature are children of Wrath, which is to say man in his fallen condition is corrupt. He is from head to toe totally unable to positively respond to the one true God. Sinners are are completely, absolutely impotent to submit their will in in obedient submission to Almighty God because his spirit is dead. Man in this condition must be born again. A work of God alone. To be born again is the monergistic, not synergistic. It's not part God, part me. It's the monergistic soul work of God. So it's not part me and part God. It's all God and none of me when it comes to the salvation that's been granted to me. Ephesians 2 4 says, God being rich in mercy, speaking to Christians, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. That, my friends, is the supernatural monergistic work of God. Now, last Lord's Day, I asked, Why has he done this supernatural work in you? If you're a Christian here this morning, Um, He has done this work in you, yet we all know that we have friends and we have family who have heard the same message, they've been exposed to the same gospel, yet they continue in unbelief. Why you and not them? Is it because you're better? Which we conclude, no, absolutely not. We're not any better. Are we smarter? Are they truly dead, but we were only in a spiritual coma? No, we were all dead. Or perhaps it's because you think, well, I submitted my free will to come to him as I please. Well, that we learned is an unbiblical concept. Human free will is not taught in the Bible with regard to coming to God anytime we want. We all have a free will. We can, do, we can go jump off a cliff if we want. We can try to fly if we want. But your will is subject to a greater law if you try to fly, and it's subject to the law of gravity, and you will die trying to fly. 
our free will is limited in that we can't come to God freely because it's subject to a greater law referred to as the law of sin and death. We must be born again. Romans 3 is clear. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one understand. No one seeks for God. Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, says God. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on what? On human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. So the question was posed, why you and not others who remain in sin and who die in unbelief, to which the Bible answers clearly, it is because of the divine, sovereign, unconditional election of God. In other words, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth to be saved and given spiritual life. Solely do, as we learn, solely do to God's good pleasure, purpose, and will. He determined to save some. However, unconditional election in and of itself doesn't save anyone. The act of election doesn't make anyone right with God. The act of election does not allow them somehow to measure up to the bar of God, which is holy, absolute perfection. It doesn't change the sinner's disposition. It doesn't transform his fallen, sinful nature. So how then can it be that the elected are accepted? They are accepted on the basis of an atonement that has been made for their sins. Which brings us to the third petal of this beautiful flower, the tulip. It's the L, which stands for limited atonement. We could also refer to it as purposeful atonement, or definite atonement, or actual atonement. Juxtaposed to the heretical teaching of Arminianism's universal Atonement. Now, for some strange reason, this point is cause for many professing Christians to really allow their emotions to get a hold of them here, to, to run away with, with, with them or to run away from them and actually cause them to run off the rails of sound theology, derail, if you will. Even many wannabe Calvinists refer to this point and they claim, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist, for which there is no such thing. It's not possible to be a four-point Calvinist if you continue logically from the doctrine of total depravity. It's just not possible. Now, the emotional response that, that many of us that have with regard to this atonement that is limited is not that the Bible doesn't clearly teach it. It, it is clearly taught. The fact of the matter is, it's not hard to understand. Once again, it's just simply hard to what? Accept. Because we're fallen. So we have to remember the truths of Scripture, those that are difficult to accept, are only difficult because they do not align with our rationale, our ideologies, or our emotions, which are polluted. 
Our faculties are fallen. Our faculties to gauge sovereign election, our faculties to gauge uh, an atonement that is limited are fallen. We have to keep this in mind. They're corrupted. So because they're corrupted, when we don't like something in Scripture, we have a tendency to recreate or recalculate doctrine that is clearly taught in the Word of God. Whenever that is, we refuse to submit those fallen faculties to the authority of Scripture. You think about this concept, the Arminian concept, which was debated at the Synod of Dort in 1618, who declared that Christ's death did not ensure salvation for anyone. It did not secure the gift of faith for anyone. Christ's death, according to the Arminians, only creates a possibility of salvation for everyone. If we submit our will, and believe. That's otherwise known as universal atonement. Jesus died for all the sins of everyone without exception so long as they submit their will to believe. So theoretically, we must ask the question, what would have happened to the work of Christ if no one ever believed it? If no one ever believed in the work of Christ, Christ would have died in vain. Can I get a witness? He would have been the potential savior of all, but actual savior of no one at all. Right? Now, if you were to ask the average Christian in America today, for whom did Christ die? They will answer, for the whole world. Jesus died for everybody. Meaning the whole world without exception. That's what they think. That's how they answer the question. Due to the fact now that most Christians in our day view doctrine very superficially and without a lot of deep thinking, that has become the common evangelical view of Christ's atoning work on the cross. So they conclude, God has done his part. He's done all he can do. Now it's up to the sinner to do their part. That is to say, all sinners have had their sins atoned for. Potentially, Christ died for the sins of all sinners without exception. And you follow that thinking through. That means there are people for whom Jesus paid the price for who are also in hell paying for their sins. That would be double payment of the son. And of the sinner. If he died for the sins of everyone without exception, we know there are people in hell paying for what? Their sin of unbelief. So Jesus paid it, and now they pay it. Now, when you confront them with that, they'll say, no, 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 no. They don't go to hell for anything except the sin of unbelief. To which we respond, well, you just said... That, all, that he died for the people of all sin, for all the sins of all people without exception. And then they begin to stammer a bit. Uh, 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 well, he died for all their sins except the sin of what? Unbelief. Which does what to the atonement? It limits it. 
It limits the atonement. Everybody believes in the limited atonement. But they limit it to my belief, which is the one work that I contribute to my salvation. So can I, can I boast? Sure I can. If I contribute this, I can boast. So because they think this, there's a certain methodology to evangelical methodology. And they think that, well, you just have to learn everyone's love language. I think there's four of them. You have to learn the love language of an individual. Because once you do, then you can reach their emotions and they'll accept Jesus. But first you have to tell them that God loves them unconditionally. That's how you start. Jesus loves you unconditionally. True or untrue? Untrue. Scripture says... God hates all workers of iniquity. Scripture says God's angry with the wicked every day. 1 John 3, 1 makes a distinction. See what kind of love the hot father has bestowed upon who? Us, those who are Christ. Does God have a general love for all of his creatures? Of course he does. But this specific salvific love is a different kind of love. So they begin with that, and they follow it up with this. Jesus loves you unconditionally, and he died for all your sins. Do you know that no one in the New Testament ever says that to an unbeliever? Ever. But many do in our day. And then they invite invite the person to reach out, accept Jesus, you know, while the pianist plays, you know, come just as you are or something. We had a guy, I think I told you the story, that was evangelizing in Balboa Park a number of years ago, very zealously, and that's great. It's a wonderful thing. He's out evangelizing in Balboa Park, saying that. Jesus loves you. He said, Jesus died for your sins, to which one man answered in Balboa Park, no, he did not die for my sins because I don't believe in Jesus. Oof, takes the wind out of your sails. Which means he happened to know more doctrine than the young man did. We straighten the young man out. Say some, let's just remind ourselves of some salvation basics. Salvation is from God, amen? He must give life to the dead. He must give sight to the blind. He must give hearing to the deaf. He must give repentance to the sinner. He must provide that. The call is repent and believe, but unless God is working in that person, they'll never repent and believe. The command is repent. The command is believe. But no one can believe unless the Holy Spirit is operative in their life to bring them to faith. Otherwise, they remain unmoved. That's just straight up biblical truth. Yet man, once again, attempts to rearrange the word of God so as not to offend our human pride and also at the same time to put at ease our emotional uproar against God's sovereign ways. That's all it is. We get all bowed up against God. And then we argue against God, which we looked at last time. We banter with him. And then God responds, who are you, who are you, old man, to talk back to God? I'm the molder. I'm the potter. You're the clay. 
So if you follow through with that way of thinking, you will create what's referred to as a universal atonement. It was Voltaire, uh, Voltaire, the French philosopher, who said, and I quote, Ever since God made man in his own image, man has been at work to return the compliment. End quote. And that's what we do whenever we hold on to erroneous theological positions. And by the way, if you want to adhere to a universal atonement and be consistent, if you want to be consistent, and you want to be consistent if you believe in universal atonement, then you better believe that no one goes to hell. Amen? The Bible teaches that Jesus has provided an effectual sacrifice for a specific group of people, those whom God has chosen for eternal life. And all those he died for were given to him by the Father, making salvation certain for them, a definite, actual atonement. So the atonement is, we'll all agree, limited to those who believe, right? But limited by whom? Who limits the atonement? Arminians believe that the atonement of Jesus is unlimited, but sinners limit its application. Making, providing a potential atonement. Okay, which is to believe that God has provided a sacrifice for sins in his son that in and of itself is not sufficient, it's not actual, it's not definite, it's not purposeful, but ever dependent on the sinner. Who can potentially neutralize or reduce its effect? Please don't believe this. Many of you still do, understandably so. If it's bred into you for years, that's all you know. But let's let Scripture speak for itself. The truth of the matter is, it's God who limits the the atonement. The equality of which is not limited, amen? But it's limited in its scope and in its purpose It's limited in extent. That is, quite simply, it was intended for certain sinners. That is, not all. Some to be saved. So God limited the atonement to those he has chosen in his or according to his divine elective purposes. Is that that hard to understand? No. Again, hard to accept? Perhaps. To those who God grants faith to believe, they will believe. So in no way is this a potential atonement. If it were, it would be wasted and ineffective. We sing the hymn, Jesus paid it all. Okay, right? Did Jesus pay it all potentially so long as you contribute the other 50%? Half and half? Or did he pay it all actually for whom it was determined by the Father 
that he would say. When Jesus said, it is finished, was it potentially finished or actually finished? Actually finished. So the atonement was either 100% actual and successful, limited to all whom God has intended to save, or Jesus potentially made atonement possible, paying in full the penalty for sins, and then all unbelievers also pay that penalty in full if they don't believe. That's eternal hell. That's mockery to the work of Christ, friends. Mockery. And that means hell is full of people that Jesus paid the penalty for. Not true. But I will tell you what's true. Heaven is full of people for whom he paid the penalty. Whoever they may be. So it's limited, the atonement that is, to the elect. Unlimited in its effect for those he chose before the foundation of the earth. It was a full and complete atonement. So there's two groups, right? Here we have two views. One biblical and God-centered, the other man-made and man-centered. And again, this goes all the way back to Pelagian thought. Which leads to semi-Pelagians, and you have Erasmus of the 16th century and Jacob Arminius. J.I. Packer talks about these two groups. He said this, quote, The two theologies thus conceive the plan of salvation in quite different terms. One makes salvation depend on the work of God, the other on the work of man, end quote. Okay, so how then, here's the question, how did Jesus view the atonement? For whom did Jesus die according to Jesus? Let's look at John 17. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Go ahead and open up to John 17. Okay, there's a reason this is called the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus. Uh, Quite simply, it's broken down into three parts. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his 11 disciples who are there with him. And verses 20 to 26, he he prays, excuse me, for those who will come to believe through the ministry of the gospel, which includes you sitting here this morning as a believer. Uh, This prayer comes on the eve of his crucifixion, actually hours before his crucifixion. um, And he provides this great high priestly prayer in light of the great high priestly work for which he will accomplish. That is, of atoning for the sins of many. Jesus said in John 10, 45, The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for, for all? For the world? No, for many. And we see, beloved, from this prayer, who those many are that Jesus prays for. Now, other than a few brief words throughout the Gospels, there's no record of such a prayer as this. Certainly not as lengthy as this. So the the prayer here, this prayer, the high priestly prayer, uh, takes on 
monumental significance. This is not some last-minute whimsical prayer. This is not a fragmented prayer. There's a deliberate progression in thought throughout this prayer. Jesus says right away, Father, the hour has come. This hour is a predetermined hour. An hour that was planned before the creation of the world. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, he he kept referring to what? An hour that was coming. He was not taken before this hour. Though they tried, he could not be taken before this hour. So he prays, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2. Since Now notice this, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So all flesh and all whom you have given him are two totally different groups. All flesh is the entire human race for which Jesus has all authority, amen? All power. He has all power and all authority which should be given to him by way of his life, death, and resurrection over every creature therein with the ultimate authority to judge. Jesus said in John 5, 22, Father has, the Father has committed to the Son our all judgment to the Son. Right? The second group is an inner circle from within that larger group. All flesh is the larger group. And the smaller group is what occupies our Lord's attention throughout this prayer. Notice the verbs gave and given. Those that you have given me, you gave them to me. Obviously, they're all referred to in the past tense. There was a giving on the part of the Father to the Son, which occurred in the past. There's a distinct group given to the Son out of this universal group. Notice carefully what verse 2 does not say. Does not say, You gave him authority over all flesh that he may give eternal life to all flesh without exception. It clearly does not say that. But rather to those only which the Father has given to him. In other words, Jesus has sovereign authority to give eternal life and he gives eternal life to every single person that the Father has given him. And now, at this night, at this time, he's ready to make atonement for them. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to those you gave me out of the what? The world. Verse 19. For for their sake, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. Verse 20. Not only these, but those who will believe. Verse 21. That they may all be what? One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now we see in verse, what is it, 17, 18, 19, and 20, he requests, sanctify them. Same word that he uses for himself. Sanctify them in the truth for their sake. For their sake, he also says, I sanctify myself. 
Sanctify them, I sanctify myself. Consecrate, sanctify. You know, we read that word throughout the Bible. Um, that, that, that word is used to speak of God who's distinct and set apart from his creation. Right? It's used for things set apart in, in honor of God. In the tabernacle, we read of furnishings within that are set apart, that are sanctified, that are consecrated for a distinct purpose determined by God. We go to the local market and we buy common bread and juice, you know, or wine for communion. It's common, right? Anything special about it? No. But we set it apart. We consecrate it for the Lord's Supper. So Jesus consecrates himself. He, he sanctifies himself for the cross. So for whom does Jesus set himself apart? Verse 19, for their sake. The 11. And verse 20, also those who will believe in me through the gospel. Now notice verse 14. He makes a distinction between them and the world. Notice, they are not of the world. Jesus does not say, I sanctify myself for the world, but for those given to me from out of the world. Okay, this is the high priestly what? High priestly prayer. Now, under the old covenant, the high priest would pray for God's covenant people. Right? He'd pray for God's covenant people. After he prayed for God's covenant people, he would go make atonement for God's covenant people. Did he ever make atonement for the world? No. Did the high priest in the Old Testament pray for Israel and then make atonement for the, Hitt, the Hittites and the Jebusites or the Parasites? Parasites. No. He atoned for those whom he prayed for. He prayed for God's covenant people, and then he made atonement for those people. So all those for whom he prayed, he also atoned for. They were one and the same. Likewise, Jesus, those who, for whom Jesus prays, he also makes atonement. They are one and the same. That's the high priestly work. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. Notice. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So if Jesus only prays for those given to him, for whom then does he make atonement? Those that he's praying for. If Jesus does not pray for the world, for whom does he not make atonement? The world. Hard to understand? No. Verse 19. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Providing, beloved, an actual, definite, particular, limited atonement. Not potential, not unlimited. An atonement that is absolute, an atonement that is effectual, not merely possible or accessible. makes you jump out of your seat with joy, doesn't it? It should. In Matthew 1, 
when Jesus, or, uh, the angel visits Joseph, husband of Mary, he's freaking out because she's pregnant, and he knows he didn't do it. The angel comes to Joseph. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Later on in Jesus' ministry in John 10, I am the good shepherd, said Jesus. I know my own. My own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Specifically, he speaks of Israel, sheep from within Israel. But verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning... Meaning, the gospel's not confined to Israel, but extends to God's elect from throughout the world. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. That is exactly what is meant by John 3.16, for those of you who are thinking, wait a minute, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world without distinction, not without exception. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is to say, again, the world without distinction. It's just not for Israel, ethnic Israel. There are approximately 10 different uses of the word world in the New Testament. It can mean the universe, It can mean physical earth. It can mean the world system. It can mean the general public. It can mean the human realm. It can mean the elect. It can mean the non-elect. That's why context, context, context is so important. Amen? When we read the the word all, it doesn't always mean all without exception. It can mean all without distinction. It can mean certainly all without exception, and it means all with regard to the elect, God's elect. People say, wait a minute. What about 1 Timothy 2.4? God desires all people to be saved. We, did we look at this last time? I listened to Billy Graham preach these old recordings, you know, on Saturday night, because I love listening to Billy Graham. But, you know, he was a typical Arminian. Bless his heart, you know. Uh, but I, he used this last night. God desires that none perish. As though he's wringing his hands. Just desiring and hoping, please don't go that way, please don't go that way. No, context, in First Timothy 2, God desires that none would perish, but all would come to faith. All who? who for whom does he speak? No, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Is Paul instructing you to pray for all people throughout the world without exception? No, pray for all kinds of people. Those that are kings, those that are in high positions, that, they may, that we may lead a peaceful and godly life. It means all kinds of people. They'll say, wait a minute, I'm going to get you on this one. In 2 Peter 2, Peter there talks about false prophets. He said, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. See, he purchased them, is what they say. Notice it doesn't say bought them with his blood, number one. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
Peter uses what theologians refer to here as phenomenological language. Describing them according to their profession. Now, if we follow through with Peter's thought, the false teachers, they have and produce false converts. You have false teachers, you have false converts, and so on. So you follow the reasoning through. He talks about coming judgment. And then when you get down to verse 21, we read, It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness, Then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now notice this, verse 22. What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Proving what? Their nature's never been transformed. Dogs eat their vomit because that's their nature. Pigs, when you wash them, go back to the mire because that's their nature. False prophets who profess Christ eventually reveal their nature. It's unconverted. And if you're unconverted, you were never atoned for. But you profess that you were. So they appeared to be part of the redeemed community. 1 John tells us, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us, proving that they were never truly of us. Boy, I'm running out of time. My goodness. Jesus stated emphatically, he would lay down his life for his what? Sheep. John 10, 15. To the unbelieving Pharisees in the same chapter, again, I bring this up, John 10, 26. He said to the Pharisees, You do not believe because you're not part of my flock. And again, what did did he not say? You're not part of my flock because you don't believe. He never said that. The reason you don't believe is because you're not part of my flock. For my flock will eventually believe. When I call them effectually, they will come. Okay, there's... There's Jesus' soteriology, just a small portion of it. What about Paul's soteriology, the doctrine of salvation? Well, he believes that Christ's atonement has a particular focus. In John 20, or Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's speaking to the elders in, in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. For whom did he shed his blood? The church. Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not the world. Ephesians 1.4, okay, something's happened to those that he died for and not the world. And that is, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. You're holy, you're blameless before God. The church, not the world. This is what heaven sings. Revelation 5, verse 9. They know who Jesus atoned for. Notice the words. By your blood you ransom people for God. Notice from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
Notice, he did not say, or heaven does not claim or proclaim, with your blood you purchased every tribe, language, people, and nation. Is this simple? Spurgeon said this. Numerous quotes on limited atonement from Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) That dude did not mess around. (laughs) I think that my Savior died... To think that my Savior died for men who were, all, who were or are in hell seems a supposition too horrible for me to entertain. End quote. All God's elect, from Adam to the last standing man or woman that will be born again and be called by way of His effectual call, saved by grace, through faith, brought into union with God through Christ, were atoned for particularly, definitely. Amen? We think about Abraham in the Old Testament. He was justified by faith. He believed God. Who called whom? God called Abraham to himself. He called him out. He enabled him to believe. And again, he was, uncon- uh, he was unconditionally elected. As I said earlier, unconditional election does not in and of itself save anyone. So Abraham had to be atoned for, did he not? Abraham died. Where did he go? Paradise, right? This we know. For people who died, were in Abraham's bosom. It's a picture of banquet. It's a picture of a banquet table. Is John laid in the bosom of Jesus in the Last Supper? It's paradise. Abraham had to be atoned for, even though he was justified. A payment that he lived off of credit for, had to be made. He lived on a credit card of a future atonement, a future payment. Jesus came and made atonement for Abraham, right? Who was already in paradise. Abraham had contemporaries who did not believe. Where did they go when they died? Hell. To torment. The place of torment. When Jesus came and atoned for the sins of Abraham, who was in paradise, Old Testament saint, did Jesus atone for those who were already in hell? No. Is he going to atone? Did he atone for someone who will be in hell this afternoon? No. Why? Because he never ordained to save them. Let me close with this. In 1 Samuel 3, we're reminded of Eli's evil sons, right? Evil sons who who stood in the role of priest and they prostituted their position for financial gain and fornication with women at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Eli never dealt with it, which is a problem. So God will swear through young Samuel This, 1 Samuel 3, verse 13. I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house, notice, shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Why no atonement? Because God never intended to forgive them. 
Easy to understand? Yes. Difficult to accept? Perhaps. Thank you, Mark. All for whom Christ atoned for, he saves and therefore forgives, and they come to him when he calls them. So can we say then to an unbeliever on the street, Jesus loves you and died for your sins on the cross. Can you say that theologically and be correct? No, you cannot. Because you don't know. Perhaps he did. And if he did, they'll come to faith. If they don't and they die in unbelief, they'll go to hell, which means he didn't. Everything you needed to be saved, everything you needed in order to be saved, Jesus paid for including the faith you have to believe. Not potentially, but effectively. Definitely. His atoning work was 100% successful, not 50% potential. Witness, beloved. So Jesus, whoa, okay, I'm almost done. Knowing that Jesus died for me, okay, knowing that Jesus died for me is, is not a condition of me getting saved. Okay, he died for my sins, so I'm going to place my faith in that, so now I'm, that's the condition for being saved. No. The fact that I'm saved and know that he paid for my sins is the consequence of being saved, not a condition to it or for it. Amen? Does that make sense? I've come to know this truth. I'm not going to tell an unbeliever Jesus died for your sins. You just say, look, here's the fact. You're a sinner in rebellion against the one true God. And this is a fellow sinner. I'm saved by grace. He's given me faith to believe and put my faith and trust in him who provides for something that I can't earn. And that is perfect holy righteousness. Jesus came and lived the perfect life in my place. He died in my place. I believe that. And he atoned for my sins. All my sins were placed upon him on the cross. And in exchange, I get all of his righteousness placed on my account. That's the gift of salvation. That's the offer. I'm not going to tell you Jesus died for your sins. Is an unbeliever. So if we do that, let's stop that. Amen? One of the levels, let me close with this. I should say one of the, the, the accusations leveled at those of us who embrace the biblical teaching of sovereign grace, divine election, and limited atonement is that it dampens zeal for evangelism. No, it does not. It should only spurn it on. That's what they refer to as a non sequitur. That you, you, you draw up this argument or you make a statement that is not even logically connected to that which is declared. Right? It's ridiculous. Definite atonement grounds and actually motivates the cause of evangelism. And it relieves you of a lot of stress. Because it's not on you to save anybody. You just declare the truth and let it be. So what is... Offered to sinners is not an opportunity to be saved or the possibility of salvation. 
but is salvation itself. The gospel. Amen? The atonement is limited. Man doesn't limit it. God has. Making it definite for those he calls to himself. And he ordained to be saved in the first place.